Hello, friends. Let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals. And oftentimes, life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not self-help. It's actual professional counseling, but it's done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And this is also about accessibility, If you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person, then this could be a great solution for you. So this service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. So again, accessibility. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com. That's Better. H-E-L-P dot com slash psych explained and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals. And there's a special offer for my Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash psych explained. You can see the link in the show notes. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another podcast related to psychology. This is Dr. Jack Chuang. And this week's um, topic is over the chapter typically found in an intro to psychology course called Psychological Disorders, or it may often be called uh, Mental Disorders. Those are pretty much interchangeable. Um, As an undergraduate, you may look for classes that go into these disorders in depth, and oftentimes they're entitled Abnormal Psychology um, or Psychopathology. Okay, so those are typical titles courses in this area. And again, for those of you who are listening and not seeing the YouTube video, I'm using the PowerPoint slide provided by OpenStacks.org. That's Stacks with an X. And this is a Psychology 2nd Edition and designed for an intro to psych class at the freshman uh, college level. All right, let's get started here. I think Um, This is a very important chapter, and I think most students who sign up for an intro to psych class and have not read anything about the field of psychology expect that, well, 
I'm sure it's about the disorders and therapies. And you realize that after taking the course and gone through many of the chapters, that it is one aspect of what psychologists do, is one field, one area of psychology. So let's go ahead and start with um, the definition. And just to give you a little bit of background, um, every, by the way, every psychology instructor you have teaching general psych will have their own particular professional background. Their training is going to be uh, very much varied in terms of their own specialty area. If you're at a four-year university, then chances are your instructor probably has a, a research paradigm or focus, a specialization of some kind, right? At the community college level, your instructors generally have more of a wide-ranging, what we call a generalist type of training, academic training. So we know a little bit about a wide variety of fields. Uh, for myself, I think I've told you before that I started my graduate training in the field of social psychology. Then I changed majors, which is a little bit unusual. But about halfway through the PhD program, I switched to a counseling psychology program. So um, my intent was to become a clinician. So I think this background is a little bit relevant here in terms of this discussion of this chapter and the following chapter on uh, psychotherapies that I have three years of clinical training and uh, did not go beyond that in terms of working professionally as a counseling psychologist. So typically it varies from state to state, but anyone using the title of psychologist might imply that they're a licensed psychologist. That is, the term psychologist might mean depending on the state you're in and in the country, uh, it means that you're, you're a person who is a clinician who's treating patients or clients, right? So even though my degree is in counseling psychology and I have a doctor degree and I can use the title doctor or PhD, that, but I'm not licensed, right? So I did not go through the licensing process in order to say, oh, I can apply for this job in a hospital setting or or open my own clinic and uh, conduct therapy, right? So in terms of seeking out someone for counseling or therapy, whether they have a master's degree or a doctor degree, that's what you need to look for is their licensure. Is their license current? And you can even do a little bit more digging and find out from the state licensing um, agency whether or not this person has had any complaints, uh, and so forth. But I think in terms of finding a therapist, it's best to maybe get some sort of referral. Um, but if you're a college student or university student listening to my podcast, you do realize you have free psychotherapy available to you for your status of being a student. Um, or many employers have what's called an EAP, Employee Assistance Program, that offers mental health counseling um, and also in some health insurances they often include a certain covered a certain amount of sessions per year um, or even substance abuse uh, treatment okay so depending on what where you're at whether you're gainfully employed in America with health insurance now realize for you not in America if you're listening to this uh, we don't have universal health coverage here, okay? So usually having good health coverage uh, 
and medical coverage means that you have to be employed, right? Unless you're of retirement age and you are, you have Medicaid, uh, Medicare available to you, okay? Um, so that's one of the aspects of living in the United States is that you do have to get the best coverage you can through your employer, right? And uh, But I think mental health treatment is one of those things that most people are not thinking about or don't realize they have when they look at their health insurance. Okay, I can talk about that in the next chapter coming up about therapies. All right, so I just want to give you a little bit of background in terms of uh, my training, right? So my training has been about, it's about 20 years ago since I was a clinician in terms of working in the hospital setting. And my first year of clinical training was in a university counseling center. So that's why I mentioned that for you college and university students. If you were to walk into a counseling center, sometimes you might be working with a graduate student who is in training, who is supervised by someone who is licensed and working in the counseling center. And I think for myself as a trainee, that was very invaluable because I'm not working with the severely mentally ill. Uh, most common issues are anxiety and stress and depression, um, amongst other issues, if we dig deeper sometimes for some students, but generally the types of issues that require hospitalization and all, all that, um, those severe mental illnesses are not found as prevalent in the university counseling center. Then my second year of training during my doctoral training was at the Houston Veterans Affairs Hospital. So that's the VA hospital. And it's a huge hospital. It's the second largest federal building in the U.S. at the time, I think next to the Pentagon. Um, I'll have to look that up to see if that's still true. But at the time, that's what they told us. They have robots roaming the halls um, that basically carry items like dirty laundry and all that. And so you'll see a box with a light on top just moving down the hallway. So at the time when I was at the VA hospital, I thought I was it was like a science fiction episode. And uh, my third year of clinical training was in Los Angeles. Because at the time, I used it as an opportunity just to get out of the state of Texas. And uh, I applied to places in Hawaii, all over the West Coast, especially California. So I interviewed and got one, got an internship um, in Los Angeles at the downtown Los Angeles VA outpatient clinic. And it was just a few blocks away from Union Station, a few blocks away from what the locals call Skid Row, which is a street that's really quite sad, and countless homeless people living on the street. And it, that year of clinical training was the most enlightening year in terms of learning about people from all backgrounds and different conditions, and it was very enlightening. Okay, let's move on. Let's officially get started here. And uh, hopefully you'll see that these longer form lectures, I do create indexes, right, little timestamps. So um, maybe after this is published for a few days later, I will create that. So maybe you can skip over this part and go straight to the definition of a psychological disorder. All right, let's talk about psychopathology. Again, you know that every ology um, is the science of or the study of. So this is the study of psychological disorders, including symptoms, etiology. So if you ever come across that word etiology, it means the cause, causation of, as well as treatment. So that's called psychopathology. And a psychological disorder, which is often called a mental disorder, can be characterized by, well, remember the definition of personality? 
thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So if any of those aspects of our daily life have been affected in a negative way, then those are the parts that help us to understand what a psychological disorder is. So a change in behavior, change in thinking, a change in our emotions. Okay? Um, but this is a very difficult thing to do, right? How do you define, let's take a common one that many people know, depression. How, how do you separate someone who's having the blues and pretty much coping with everyday life but just feeling sad versus someone who has a diagnosis of major depression, right? And this is a very key aspect. And also, one thing we want to think about is that, you know, focusing on the word abnormal. And this is one of the very common questions that anyone in psychology as a professional will hear from people is that, oh, can you tell me if this is normal? Right? So normal, abnormal is not just, in the word atypical, it doesn't just mean statistically atypical, meaning that if something is rare, or unusual, you know, people don't do certain things, people don't ride around in a giraffe, doesn't mean, you know, does that mean that's, that's abnormal in a sense, right? It's not typical, people don't ride around in giraffes very often, but is that considered a mental disorder, right? Is that considered a disorder if it's so rare? So rarity by itself is not a definition of uh, a mental disorder, okay? So let's think about what those words normal and abnormal means. Um, to me, I would focus on whether one's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are abnormal to your own personal normal, right? If you can draw a line for where your ups and downs are for your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and if there's a sudden shift for you, right, not in comparison to others, but just for yourself, then those could be, that could be a warning sign, all right? Um, culture plays a large part here because what's socially normal in one culture, right? What's appropriate in one culture may not be appropriate in another, right? So you have to keep that context um, in play here when deciding whether something's a disorder or not, okay? Um, so even something like hallucinations, which may have a certain cultural explanation in one place but in another place that would be considered all oh, highly unusual and someone would require treatment okay so let's think about the term dysfunction all right i think we throw around that word a lot when describing families you know you know i'm from a dysfunctional family right that word has been used quite a bit and that might be one of the better ways to define what a psychological disorder is is whether someone is experiencing a harmful dysfunction right? is where someone's internal mechanisms, whether that's cognition, your thinking, perception, right, how you see the world, right, your ability to learn has broken down and is no longer functioning normally. Right? Now a dysfunction also can be harmful. Right? So this is um, one of the ways to decipher and decide whether someone has a disorder that requires treatment is the level of harm. Are they harming themselves with this behavior? Are they harming others with this behavior in the way of thinking? Okay. All right. Now, the American Psychological Association has a definition of what a psychological disorder is. So it's a condition 
where a person is experiencing significant disturbances in the way they think, the way they feel, and the way they behave. All right? And um, it could be rooted in biology. Right? Um, it could be shown, displayed in terms of their psychology, or it could be a developmental dysfunction. Um, one sign that someone may be suffering from a psychological disorder is that can they maintain their activities of daily life, right? Are they able to pay their bills, go to work on time, right? Think about addiction. You know, addictions are also mental disorders. If someone has a dependency on a substance to the point where they're missing work, they're putting others in danger or the substance in danger, because of their abuse of that substance, right? Then it's possible that they're crossing that line, right? From, well, it could be a problem too. It's definitely a problem that needs to be addressed, okay? And so think about the level of harm this disturbance or this, this, this dysfunction is. So that's very important. So while there's no black and white universal agreement on any particular boundary or definition between disorder and what isn't a disorder, what's considered normal, right? Um, you know, human behavior is varied, right? So when it comes to our emotions, we have highs and lows and everything in between, right? So if you want to keep clear in your mind, well, how, what's a red flag and what isn't, then it depends on the person, right? It depends on the level of harm. And, and is it interfering with their activities of daily life? What psychologists call ADL, right? Activities of daily life or daily living. Does it interfere with schoolwork for a student? Um, is there a significant change in their weight, appetite, appearance, right? All of these things are signs. There's not one sign that will tell you that someone's suffering from this particular disorder. Sometimes it's a clump of symptoms, right? And this is this is the challenge of working in the field of counseling or clinical psychology. Now there's a book that I'd like you to become f familiar with and it's a book that really anyone can buy or find in a public library. You don't have to be a licensed professional to own this particular manual and it's called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And there are, have been many editions. We're in edition five and oftentimes it takes a dozen years before a new edition comes out. And now I think because we're in a more modern digital era, and even though we're in the DSM-5, and the one before that was called the DSM-4R uh, revision, I believe. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, the reason that these things need to be updated is similar to a psychology textbook being updated. There's new research regarding some disorders. Some things that were regarded as disorders are no longer regarded as disorders, like homosexuality, actually in one of the earlier editions was considered a disorder that required treatment and that is no longer the case so the book has a lot of validity um, some sometimes it causes some controversy depending on someone's professional point of view um, but if you work in a hospital setting you almost have to use the DSM to use the codes that go along with the diagnosis that has to be sent to a health insurance company for them to determine whether or not they'll pay out for this kind of treatment. 
So even though in the clinician's mind, maybe they have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, they do have to decide to put down a code of some kind, a numerical code that is associated with a particular disorder, right? So the DSM is actually created and published by the American Psychiatric Association. Remember the difference, psychiatrists are MDs, right? They're medical doctors. So they're really more of a proponent of the biomedical model. That's their focus, right? That's why they'll use words like symptoms, okay? Uh, more so than uh, your average psychologist. Um, and they will focus on medications as a treatment more so than a psychologist. Right? Psychologists will focus on talk therapy and other kinds of psychological interventions rather than going straight for medication. Now, there's a place for both, and we'll talk about it in the next chapter. Okay, And so you can see here that there are a lot of additions. And it's it's basically helpful because it creates a universal language so that no matter, for example, if you're in the U.S., and this is a U.S. publication, that if you move from state to state and follow up with a different psychiatrist or psychologist, and the diagnosis system is used um, based on the DSM-5, then the professionals are speaking a common language, and that can be very important, right? So you're not just getting a, a summary from one counselor and you go into a different counselor. Say you go to a different university, go see a different counselor there, and they, and they don't understand the notes from your previous. That's not going to happen when you have this common language, right? So the DSM-5, and I taught a class that was basically, uh, it was a master's level psychopathology class, and one of the textbooks was the DSM. And so we'll go through category by category. And the way it works is that for a clinician, there's a checklist of symptoms, right, that someone's exhibiting. And the DSM will say, well, if this person has three of these five listed symptoms and they've experienced them for 10 days or more for each, you know, that kind of thing, then you check that off the list. Now, it doesn't mean 100% that that person is suffering from this. You still have to run other tests and do uh, clinical interviews and talk to the person or maybe family members, right? So creating a diagnosis is not just one test, one interview, right? Or just looking at a checklist. It's, it's all of those things combined, right? What are their symptoms? How long have they had them? What's their family history, right? And so there's a lot of statistics, scientific uh, empirical data within the DSM-5 in terms of what the diagnostic symptoms are, what the diagnostic criteria is, right? So what that means is the checklist, that's, and if that person meets all those different uh, symptoms, then they could be diagnosed with that particular disorder, all right? It also lists prevalence, and that's the word we'll use a lot in this next chapter, in this chapter, it's basically talking about how frequently this occurs, right? How many people in this population in the, in the country, how many, uh, what percentage of females have this, what percentage of men have this, different age groups, right? So that's what prevalence is. And a risk factor is basically saying what, what are the possible um, causal factors, such as could be age, could be an environmental stress, could be genetics, right? All of these are risk factors. And you'll also see the word comorbidity a lot when studying uh, psychology, clinical psychology or, or disorders. And a comorbidity, I believe this is on the next page, over here. Yeah, it basically means 
someone who's experiencing symptoms of two different disorders at the same time. There's an overlap, right? So, for example, you're working with someone who is depressed, right? But it's also possible that they have obsessive compulsive disorder as well, right? So if they have both, right? And the DSM will say, for example, that 40% of patients who have this will also have that, right? So you may hear this used in the general population in the news when they're talking about different kinds of diseases, right? Now, prevalence rates, and this is from the DSM-4, just to give you a, a brief idea. Um, when you compare men versus women, right? So this is red versus green, right? Women tend to have a higher prevalence rate of depression compared to men, right? Uh, men tend to have higher rates of substance or alcohol abuse compared to women, okay? And, and these statistics are gathered through clinics, okay, in terms of uh, uh, official diagnoses, right? And, uh, and, and so for each, in the DSM, for each particular disorder, they will try to list, if they have the data, of prevalence rates. All right, so if you're a nursing major or have worked in the medical setting before, you know that the World Health Organization has their own classification of diseases called the ICD, International Classification of Diseases. And this is, this is kind of um, a complement to the DSM. They're very similar, in fact. Whereas the ICD is an international coding system for diseases, the DSM is American-based, okay, used by American mental health professionals, but they serve the same purpose, which is creating a common language for physicians around the world to identify and catalog different diseases, okay? All right, so when it comes to psychological disorders, if we're coming from the biological perspective, we're mainly thinking about genetics, okay? Um, we're also thinking about whether or not, if you've heard of the language being used, such as, oh, schizophrenia has to do with a chemical imbalance in the brain, that's the biological perspective, right? Or whether there's a brain abnormality, let's say from a brain injury, right, that could have consequences with regards to one's memory, right? Um, if someone suffers from an aphasia or um, they're um, not able to remember um, certain things, right? So that that also could be uh, biologically based type of disorder, okay? So this chart here that's in our textbook talks about schizophrenia. And this kind of chart's been in these psychology textbooks forever. So if you find a 10-year-old psychology textbook, the same chart, similar chart will be in there. It basically looking at the research, comparing how closely a person's related to someone else, right? So if a relative has schizophrenia and all, they list all these different types of relatives from distant cousin to a, being an identical twin, right? Then what is the risk of developing schizophrenia? So at the very extreme, if you're part of an identical twin and your sibling, your twin, has schizophrenia, has been diagnosed with it, then you have a 50% chance of being diagnosed with it, right? So 
for many disorders, the biological link, the, the genetic link is pretty strong. Now we're going to also focus on the diathesis stress model, right? The diathesis stress model is basically saying, let's focus on this first word, diathesis. This is, what this means is that a person who has an underlying predisposition for something, right? That's, that's what's called diathesis. So for someone to become or to have schizophrenia, if we go by this model is that someone in the family has it, that's number one, but that's only the biological perspective, right? So that's not a guarantee that someone will develop it. But if they're of a certain age and they're related to someone with schizophrenia and they undergo a certain type of stressor, right? So if we add that predisposition plus stress, then that could lead to the development of a disorder, right? So it's focused on the biology and the psychology uh, in terms of uh, expo being exposed to some environmental or psychological events. So that's another way to look at and understand our disorders. That So it's not a 100% guarantee just because you have close family members with a disorder or addiction that you will become an addict or have schizophrenia. It just means that, you know, you're genetically prepared or more likely to be triggered by it. That's the diathesis stress model. Okay, let's move into, let me have a sip of coffee. Let's move into our first category of disorders, and these are anxiety disorders. Oh, man, my coffee's cold. Oh, crap. All right. So first, when, we, when it comes to anxiety, we have to define what that means, okay? One component of anxiety is fear, right? So naturally, phobias are within the anxiety disorder category. Phobia is an extreme fear of something. Anxiety itself, obviously, these are anxiety disorders, can be broken down into apprehension, right? which is a sense of nervousness, anticipation, avoidance of something, part of anxiety, being extremely cautious, right? My wife and daughter make fun of me for being the anxious traveler, right? Like when we're driving around in our camper van and finding a place to sleep overnight, I'm really wary of my surroundings. I know I don't think we should park here. Let's park over there. Let's, you know, and it's like, come on, let's go, just park somewhere and go to sleep, right? So they think I'm the anxious traveler, right? Um, all right, so fear, being cautious regarding a potential threat, that's me, danger or other negative content. Um, an anxiety disorder, could, part of it can be having to motivate us to avoid certain things, to take certain actions, right? Um, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, which we'll talk about later. Being, for example, someone may have the fear of contamination, fear of germs, right? So that would motivate that person to take action, which is extreme cleaning. Uh, I'm recording this, of course, during the early December of 2020, which is the most horrible year in my memory. And uh, we're in the United States where the pandemic of COVID-19 is pretty much out of control, right? So there's a lot of anxiety, obviously, during this time for many of us, okay? Now, one general definition of an anxiety disorder, and we'll go through some specific ones, is that there's excessive and persistent. Okay, those are two different things to look at. Excessive, too much of, persistent, that lasts a long time, 
combination of fear and anxiety symptoms, right? And we notice it because we can see that someone has a disturbance in their usual behavior, right? Again, I'm trying to avoid the words normal and abnormal, but let's talk about that person's usual versus unusual behavior. That's a, a different, definite change, okay? So the prevalence, and, the, and again, these are from the DSM, about 25 to 30% of the U.S. population during their lifetime may experience anxiety symptoms. It doesn't mean they'll have a full-blown disorder, but they'll have symptoms. It tends to be more common in women than men. Now, this is pretty interesting. It doesn't mean that for certain women experience more anxiety than men. What it also could mean is that women are much more likely to seek help for it than men, right? So we have to look at these statistics and try to understand them and what they mean. And in every, it doesn't mean that men are immune to anxiety, right? Men may manifest or express their anxiety. They may suppress it more. Women may feel amongst themselves, amongst other women, more it's more socially acceptable to talk about problems, talk about what their anxieties are than men would be. Men would just get together and watch football and suppress it, right? Uh, anyway, so that's just something to pay attention to when we look at these statistics, okay? And it's a very high prevalence mental disorder, anxiety disorders, okay? Now, when we talk about phobias, and there's a whole long list of phobias, and if you go back to classical conditioning, which explains the process of having this frightening experience, right? And then we're, we have an association with whatever that experience was, whether we fell from a tall ladder and then we develop a fear of heights, whether we're bitten by an animal and therefore have a phobia of dogs, right? Um, so a phobia really could be almost anything arbitrary, depending on one's uh, early life experience, okay? Fear of water, right? That kind of thing. So even though this extreme fear is irrational, it can be very paralyzing in a sense that people will go to great lengths to avoid the stimulus. So again, this is... We have to look at the level of dysfunction, right? Everybody can claim to have a phobia of something, but to have a phobia to the extent that it's diagnosable and requires treatment is how much does it interfere with one's daily life? So if someone has a fear of heights, acrophobia, but the fear is so bad that they avoid going anywhere, driving on any road that goes over a bridge, uh, in Texas, we have these overpasses, right, an exit from one freeway to the next that are amazingly tall where you're looking down on high rises, okay? They're crazy tall. Someone who really has acrophobia, they would not drive on that bridge, that overpass, right? They would not take an escalator. They would not take an elevator to a higher floor other than the ground floor, right? So that can significantly reduce their opportunities in life, right? if they are, if it paralyzes them to that extent. Now, um, a phobia can create a panic attack, right? Um, so a panic disorder is a separate category than a phobia disorder, right? But the difference is, is that someone with a panic disorder has panic attacks that occur randomly without warning in a, across different situations. Whereas someone with a phobia, and this could be a good test question, right? And it has been a good test question. How do you tell the difference 
between a phobia and a panic disorder, even though the two people might be having the same exact symptoms, right? Where they have trouble breathing and their heart is pounding out of their chest, they're sweating profusely, right? They're about to black out, right? But one person who has a phobia, they are exposed to that particular stimulus, right? Where there's a consistent pattern that this is what triggers it. Now, if there's no specific trigger, then that person likely has a panic disorder. All right, so I mentioned earlier that how do we get a phobia? Through classical conditioning, right? Through association with something that was very frightening, okay? So again, you can review that. Go back to the classical conditioning chapter on learning and look at the Pavlov example with the dogs, okay? So... If you don't remember the unconditioned stimulus and unconditioned response, that's that's okay for now, but you need to understand that the the process of conditioning is what can lead to developing a phobia. And because it's so extreme, you don't have to do it multiple times. You don't have to be bitten by a snake five times to have a phobia of snakes, right? You can be bitten once and develop that phobia. And then you would avoid movies like Snakes on a Plane, right? I love that movie. I don't, I can't explain it. I love zombie movies too. I can't explain that either. All right. So I'm always looking at places, you know, and things and, oh, is it zombie proof? You know, I don't know if any of you have that experience. Maybe it's just me. All right. Okay. Let's move on. So in terms of uh, anxiety, oh, one aspect of uh, phobias that's kind of interesting is that you don't have to directly experience that event to pick up a phobia right it could be learned vicariously you know how people use that phrase oh i'm living my vicariously through you like you're reading somebody's travel blog and you're you're enjoying the travels that someone else is traveling right so for those of you old, old enough to have experienced 911 back in 2001 right many people became very anxious and had post traumatic stress disorder which we'll talk about later some were afraid to fly Right? Even though they were not in New York to directly experience it, right, or see the planes flying overhead and crashing into the buildings, they not it was vicarious. They watched it through the news, right? And uh, so for many frightening events, we don't have to personally be present to be traumatized or be affected by them. All right, um, another type of anxiety disorder is social anxiety, right? Um, so this is the fear and avoidance of social situations, right? So some people may have social phobias in a sense, right? Um, sometimes you can see it as pretty obvious where someone avoids eye contact, right? They have very difficult time uh, being in a workplace Okay. Um, it's associated with lower educational attainment, lower earnings, right? It's 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 paralyzing for them, okay, because they don't want to be in a social situation where they're judged by others, and it can be and it can create a lot of impairments, right? So this same person living a solitary life, right, in a very rural area, probably would not be diagnosed with social anxiety disorder if they if they can get along working and you know, get, sustain themselves and live independently and not feel a sense of suffering, 
then there wouldn't be a disorder. So a lot of these disorders have to do with one's inability to cope with everyday living and the responsibilities of everyday living. So you always use the example, you know, if someone was living on an island by themselves, would it matter if they're hallucinating or would it matter if they're seeing things, hearing things, or have a lot of anxiety of, you know, it, it, it may not be, right? They may not have a disorder if they're alone on a deserted island because a lot of our disorders come from interactions with others or the inability to interact with others. Uh, for example, I mentioned earlier panic disorder, right? So there's a comorbidity, remember that word, uh, of anxiety disorders uh, mixed in with uh, major depression, okay? So a panic attack, uh, a lot of people who have panic attacks mistake it for a heart attack because they feel shortness of breath. They may even have accelerated heart rate or chest pain, feel nausea or some sort of stomach dysfunction, feel dizzy, lightheaded, right? These are all symptoms of a panic attack. Now in the DSM, there's a long list of other symptoms. And so someone would have to have a certain number of these symptoms on a checklist before they could be diagnosed with having a panic attack. Now having, um, and there's a frequency, right? So a panic attack is one episode. A panic disorder is having a persistent pattern, right? Once a month on average of panic attacks, right? Um, and recurrent, unexpected, right? Because if they're expected and triggered by something, it could be a phobia. So panic disorder is having repeated panic attacks. And this is, again, all under the umbrella of anxiety disorders. All right, let's move forward. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the particular causes, but let's talk about GAD, generalized anxiety disorder. And this is one of the most common anxiety disorders where someone really has an overall sense of anxiety pretty much om almost all the time, right? So it's not triggered by a specific situation like social anxiety or a specific phobia. And the word here in the definition, pointless worrying and apprehension, fairly continuous state of worry right, and fear. Um, and this person could, just like general depression, they could cope possibly right um, they could probably hold down a job maybe barely okay but uh, but it's very difficult it's very difficult for them um, but because they can somewhat get by they may they may not be diagnosed with this okay um, and so the symptoms can be accompanied by any three of the following symptoms again this is from the DSM feeling restless cannot concentrate. You know, when I was at the University Counseling Center and students would fill out a form when they visit there saying, well, why are you here today? One of the most common things that I saw as a counselor there in training was the, were the words um, doing poorly in classes, uh, having poor memory and concentration, right? And so that that's what sticks out for a student is their performance in school because that's you know, what they're experiencing every day and what's important to them. And then you peel away the onions and get to know them a little bit better, find out what's going on with them. And they may be suffering from generalized anxiety disorder or they may suffer from depression, right? It becomes something that's diagnosable and requires treatment. But 
the only symptoms that stick out sometimes for a student is this idea that whether it's sleep, focus, they'll say they read the chapter and they can't remember a thing that they read, right? Feeling tense, all these variety of symptoms, but because they're in the midst of experiencing that, they really don't see the big picture, putting it all together and how it changed for them over time to the point where they can see for themselves that this is anxiety or this is depression, right? And so this is a fairly high prevalence rate of 5 to 6% of the, of the U.S. population having these symptoms during their lifetime. And again, uh, women are have double the uh, prevalence rates of men. Okay, And there are comorbidities, mood disorders and other anxiety disorders. So generalized anxiety disorder is often accompanied by something else. All right, so if we talk about causes, right, if we look from the cognitive perspective, right, one of the ways we can see someone who has generalized anxiety disorder has to do with their level of thinking, right, the level of worrying. Okay. Uh, maybe it's a way of trying to cope with a traumatic experience. Okay. Uh, worrying can be a distraction from remembering a childhood painful experience. So oftentimes there's a correlation between childhood abuse of some kind and to having this disorder later on during adulthood. So it's, it's a lingering effect of a traumatic experience. Right? And we can say the same thing about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. I know a lot of people tend to joke about OCD because they may see um, a character in a movie who supposedly has OCD symptoms and all that. And... Oftentimes we talk about it jokingly, right? That, oh yeah, my sister's so OCD, just look at the way she, you know, organizes her room. But what I want to get across here is that, yeah, sometimes we do joke about it and use that label, but let's be clear. A person who has a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder is suffering, Right? The family members in the same house are suffering, right? It is not something that's just, oh, quirky, or, oh, just look at this. That's, that person's just so neat. They're OCD, right? Um, oh, they're so clean and neat and organized. Everything's alphabetized. They're OCD. That is not OCD, right? There's a range of it, but to the point where someone has a diagnosable disorder, they are truly trapped and suffering a great deal okay so let's define these terms what is obsession obsession is the thinking right persistent unintentional unwanted thoughts and these thoughts are also urges and they're intrusive they can't they're out of control okay they cannot stop obsessing over something so a very common one is the obsession over contamination and germs now remember, these are what's happening in the in the mind and the brain. Okay, uh, these are the obsessions. So oftentimes we cannot see the obsessions. Right? What we see are the compulsive behaviors. Compulsions are actions. Right? So let's separate O versus the C. Right? Obsessions are thoughts. To relieve the pressure of all these repetitive thoughts, a person compulsively acts out. Right? So the action is sort of like a a release of like a pressure cooker, okay? 
minimizing the distress, that obsessions, so they feel a sense of relief, right? So don't you think if you're worried about germs that after cleaning and washing your hands, cleaning your environment, mopping the floor, you feel a sense of satisfaction and relief, right? Okay, think about how you feel every time you clean up, right? Whether it's doing laundry, right? you have a sense of satisfaction and relief. Well, again, taken to the extreme, this is the cycle that someone with OCD is experiencing. They're experiencing these uncontrollable, repetitive thoughts and urges about something. Then to relieve that somewhat, they act out on it, right? And, uh, and again, it, the compulsions are not performed out of pleasure, right? And there's a part of them that sees this behavior, right? And they know that what they're doing is irrational, but it's not under their control, okay? It's like alcoholism. You can't just tell someone not to drink. You just can't tell someone who has an eating disorder to eat more, right? Especially if they're um, anorexic, right? It, it is not solved that way. It is not under their control. If it was, then they would have controlled it, right? So this this person who has this cycle, right, of obsessions followed by compulsive behaviors, it is quite intrusive and it can trap someone, right? Um, so an example of a compulsive behavior is repetitive hand washing. And if you've ever seen a patient or a depiction of a patient who goes through this ritual, I mean, this is talking about scalding hot water, talking about using only a particular kind of soap, and, and sort of like how you see a surgeon on television scrubbing before surgery. It, it's that kind of behavior. Right. And, and again, it's to the point where their skin is worn down, right? Or they're, they're having blisters or cracks in their knuckles from dry skin. So this is not something that can be viewed positively, right? Cleaning, and, and a person can spend all day just cleaning their house, even though it's already spotless. So again, this is where it's interfering. There, there's a level of suffering and it's interfering with their everyday life, okay? Um, checking is another one, right? Whether it's counting, another one is checking, like checking to see if something was locked or closed. Now, for us who are not suffering from OCD, yeah, we experience a little bit of that too. Oh, did I lock the, the door? Did I close the garage door, right? And you check, right? So you have the, the thought followed by the action. So someone with OCD is someone who, almost as if they don't remember locking the door so they will look at the door and lock it walk away then have the thought again i did not lock the door and go back and lock it again and they may have to lock it four or five times before they're satisfied and they can move on right so you can see how much this can interfere with someone's life okay um another type of uh anxiety disorder is a body dysmorphic disorder it's usually accompanied with uh, an eating disorder and this is an obsession about one's own physical appearance, that they see a flaw, right? Uh, whether it's their weight, whether it's something about their skin, their hair, it could be anything um, about their body. But to most people, it's not even observable. It's not, not even noticeable, right? So this is seems to be a type of OCD where they obsess and they have to check in the mirror, keep looking, and they keep having the thoughts and they keep looking, right? And someone could 
resolve it by going to have cosmetic surgery, unnecessary cosmetic surgery, unnecessary comparisons with others. And you can see how in our modern society with social media, that person can really be out of control, right? Uh, especially on Instagram or these other kinds of photo-centric social media platforms where you just see other people with perfect makeup and perfect features, right? That's our perception. And then they realize that, oh, I need to change myself, right? So there is a breakdown in how they perceive themselves, that they're deformed or unattractive in some way. And you may be surprised that the person might be a professional model or an actor or have this position where the general public perceives them as being highly, highly attractive or above average in that department. But yet for themselves, they see themselves as being ugly or overweight. And, and there are a lot of popular shows these days talking about hoarding. And I hope you see the shows that are that have experts and psychologists on them and talking about and, and they actually depict the true suffering and that it's not just portrayed in some sort of comical way. I think a lot of Hollywood movies, they, they love going into the DSM and looking up disorders and creating characters or evil villains that have disorders. And even more so than race in Hollywood, um, th there were studies done that showed that the most common aspect or characteristic of many villains in movies was that they had a mental disorder right so this is a, there's this association that somehow um having a disorder is associated with violence or being evil and all that and it, it really does not help the cause of trying to educate people about mental illness okay um so if you if you think about hoarding which is very interesting it's that they have, um, and again, there's a matter of degree, right? I think if you're in a household that's multi-generational and you've been in the house for at least, I don't know, your household's been in there for 30, 40 years or more, you're bound to collect stuff, right? There's bound to be a lot of stuff that's not thrown away. Uh, there might be some treasure items in the attic or in the basement, right? Um, so, and you could claim that, all oh, your mom's a hoarder, look at all these different margarine containers or, or whatever, right? So we, a lot of us have these collecting tendencies to collect things and our house becomes cluttered. But again, this is a matter of degree. For someone to actually have a disorder, it means that it's gotten to the point where it's interfering with their daily life and there's a lot of suffering for themselves and family members, right? So we're talking about um, creating an unhealthy environment where there may be mice and rats going around, right? Where hygienically speaking is not just a cluttered place with boxes and furniture. There's food things, food wrappers that are not thrown away. Okay, so the challenge of making that diagnosis really has to do with whether or not that person is suffering family members are suffering are they putting themselves and other people in harm's way right i mean are the stacks of things so high that it could fall and injure someone for example right um could could the shelves be bending with so much weight on them where they could collapse you see uh do they have the inability to they're so attached to useless so-called so useless things that they can't even recycle or donate or throw some things away right so there's a lot of association with sentimental value with items that 
to most people they would consider to be junk. And I think my, my mother had a little bit of this. Again, I'm not going to call her a hoarder, but every time we try to come and in the past few years, uh, my, my, mom, my mom's passed away for a while, but uh, back when she was living, we would come and do a garage sale for them, just to declutter the house. And I remember seeing my mom sort of tiptoeing out to the driveway, looking around, casually picking up some stuff, walking it back to the house, you know. <laughs> and uh, and not too long ago, I helped my older sister move out of her house, and, and she's picked up my mom's sort of tendency to collect things, right? And there was an old house, and they're moving out of it on a big piece of land. And it's gone to the point where the house is in really bad shape, and and a lot of things exposed to to the elements. And there are wild animals running in and out, so they don't live there anymore. But we're there to sort of help clean up and move things out, right? And consider what to throw away and what not. And and for me, I would have taken a bulldozer to the place and just call it a day. But for her, she just made repetitive trips go back into the house to look for things that oh this was you know my daughter is from third grade you know and even though it's dirty and in bad condition you know oh I should keep it you know so there's a lot of this attachment to items that's part of hoarding all right um again in in the DSM for someone suffering from OCD just there's a genetic component to it right just like many other disorders. So you'll see some percentages related to identical twin studies and fraternal twins and whether other family members and so forth, right? And um, the conditioning theories of operant and classical conditionings can help to explain how someone develops um, uh, OCD. And again, the obsessive thoughts create a lot of anxiety then the action, the compulsive behavior is a way of relieving the anxiety, right? So you can think of that as reinforcing. And then it just creates that cycle, right? Remember what Skinner said that every single behavior that we do, no matter how frequent or infrequent, we do it because something is feeding it, right? There's a reinforcement feeding that behavior. So it's kind of easy to see what's feeding the OCD type behavior. All right, and let me shift gears a little bit. We're still under the umbrella of anxiety disorders. Let's talk about PTSD, right? Um, Post-traumatic stress disorder. And early research in PTSD, and uh, and it used to be called shell shock back in the day of uh, early wars, is people coming back from uh, military combat would have certain symptoms, okay? and the let's look at the diagnostic criteria here. And, and now, of course, PTSD is applied to all types of circumstances and traumas, not limited to military-type events or experiences, combat veterans. So any individual that's exposed to or witnessed or experienced the details of a traumatic experience, right? So that's from the American Psychological Association. So it was first recognized in soldiers, right? And there's a, there has to be a persistence to it. The symptoms occur for at least a month. So what kind of symptoms would you expect from someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, you might expect, expect someone to have um, really intrusive, right? Sometimes uncontrollable, very distressing memories of that event, right? Uh, they may have flashbacks. Okay? 
So they may have a time where they're um, reliving the feeling as if they're reliving the event. And, and it's very lifelike. Okay, so a flashback is slightly different than just an intrusive memory. It's much more vivid. They may avoid whatever the stimulus that triggers the event. So thinking back to my experience in the VA hospital, working, I worked on a PTSD unit, and there was a group therapy um, made up of mostly Vietnam-era veterans. So for each person, they would talk about a specific thing that would trigger their post-traumatic stress, and they would, in a sense, overreact to whatever that stimulus is. So for one person, it would be any kind of loud, sudden noise. So he would, one patient told us that when he was riding on a city bus and the muffler of the city bus backfired, you know, just made a, the muffler made a loud booming sound. Yes, that we would all be startled from that, but it startled him to the point of jumping under the bench seat, right? And that could be very uh, humiliating, you know, in public to have that kind of reaction and people staring at him, right? Um, and for another patient, it was the sound of a helicopter, right? And again, for most of us, we hear a helicopter sound, we identify, it doesn't bother us. But for others who've been in combat, their association and trigger was the sound of helicopters. And that would trigger someone to the point of having a panic attack, being paralyzed in a sense having extreme anxiety. And for another patient that I recall, it was the smell of the rain. This is a Vietnam-era combat veteran who fought in the jungles and it rained a lot. And so the smell from rainfall, and I remember distinctly this particular patient was huge. It was big and strong. You know, you think, oh man, this guy's like a real-life Rambo. He can stop a truck with his arms, you know, that kind of thing. But... He would be paralyzed in a fetal position whenever it rained. And sometimes um, it didn't rain much when we were in Los Angeles, but when it did and, the, and we had group therapy, um, it was 100% that he would not be able to attend uh, that week. Um, so so there's a, a, a long list of symptoms when it comes to post-traumatic stress. So for someone to be diagnosed with it, the symptoms have to be recurring, for a certain amount of time and they would have to have a certain number of these and again for many people it has to do with how intrusive it is in their lives right and this can be very difficult for a spouse or a family member who lives with someone with post-traumatic stress um, because they as a combat veteran they may not want to talk to and burden their spouse or family members about it they know they can't really relate to it. The family members are kind of handcuffed in the sense that they don't know what to do. How do you support someone like that? right? So the goal of our PTSD therapy groups was to have our uh, veterans talk about it, their, their experiences. And, and the, at the time, okay, the strategy was, I'm not saying this is the current strategy in therapy groups. I'm sure it's advanced a lot. But at the time, the idea was to decrease the negative association of these memories, right, by talking about them frequently to the point where they don't uh, create such a heightened anxiety response, right? And then the other people in the group would hear these stories and then they would relate to them with their own stories. Now, for myself, who's never been in combat, um, it's not uncommon for 
someone to experience vicarious trauma, right, and then suffer PTSD as well. Uh, there was a case where, and there are a couple of examples here. There's a case that really stood out to me where a Marine Corps officer, this is back in the, in the, during World War II in the South Pacific, he was a photographer, but he was in combat. And, uh, and he collected a bunch of photos, put them away for storage, and he's lived pretty much a normal, healthy life for decades. Until his brother discovered his suitcase and thought the photographs were so amazing that without the patient's knowledge, he took them to the LA newspaper and they published a story about it, right? The patient saw his own photos in the newspaper and somehow that triggered something deep down to the point where he developed PTSD symptoms, sleep disturbance, flashbacks, those kinds of things. So remember, he was in combat and not everyone who experiences combat comes back with PTSD, right? Uh, a select unfortunate few do come back with it, but not the majority, right? So that's what's interesting about PTSD is that you can have a group of, say, 100 in the same war zone, and maybe 10 or 20 will come back with severe PTSD and others don't, right? They just go about their business and, and whatnot. And so, so this photographer who lived a normal, healthy life for decades, I remember I was doing intake that day at the clinic, he walked in and said, I need to check myself in for treatment for possibly having post-traumatic stress. And through the interview, that's what he talked about, was his symptoms and, and, and the whole story of having his pictures um, in the newspaper. And there was another case where, oh yeah, this, this actually happened, where um, one of the intake staff members, now this is probably one of the downsides of the VA at the time, again, I don't know how it's done now, but a veteran has to demonstrate in order to get VA benefits that they were actually in that place during those years of service, right? So they have to tell detailed stories. So imagine being an intake employee, taking down this information of where they fall, what year, what platoon, you know, that kind of thing, what location, and then they describe things they saw. So you're, it's like watching a horror film every day, right? And then all of a sudden that person broke down, started having PTSD symptoms, checked himself into his own hospital. And it kind of freaked out the other patients who remember him as a staff member who interviewed them. And then he joined their group and said, oh man, what are you doing here? He says, yeah, well, I'm having nightmares and, and you know, uh, panic attacks. And as if he were in those combat situations. So if you think about what's happening now with COVID-19 and the people who work in nursing homes, people who work in hospitals, nurses and doctors and all other staff members, right? They don't necessarily have to be the medical, direct medical uh, nurses and, and physicians. They could be other types of staff as well, working the front desk and all that. Just being exposed to people experiencing this kind of trauma, just being exposed to people dying every day, right? Seeing the body bags and and all that. Um, don't be surprised. And this is what happened post 9-11 with the first responders, the people who were firefighters and volunteers who were digging through the rubble. 
police officers, many of them committed suicide in later years from PTSD symptoms. So, so one of the consequences of PTSD when it goes untreated or when treatment is not effective is suicide um, to relieve that, that pain. Okay, so this is um, an unfortunate but probably likely prediction is that years from now, unfortunately, we may see these first responders for COVID experiencing PTSD symptoms, and there's likely going to be suicide attempts, um, sadly. All right, so um, let me move forward a little bit and talk about mood disorders. Okay, so anxiety disorder, that's a big category uh, in the chapter on uh, psychological disorders. So let's go ahead and talk about mood disorders. Ah, drinking my really cold coffee now. And a mood disorder, now our mood is basically our emotion, right? Now another term that is used here is the word affect. A-F-F-E-C-T, right? So mood disorders are also called called affective disorders with an A, okay? Um, the word affect is another synonym for mood, so you'll hear those two terms used interchangeably in a more technical fashion rather than the word emotion, right? So think about our mood. Our mood has a range of low to high, right? Okay? And so if someone has a disruption, and we all have ups and downs, right? That's our so-called normal life. But what if someone has an extreme high, extreme low? Oftentimes students learning about this for the first time assume that a mood disorder is only about depression. But no, there, there's the opposite. There's mania or a manic disorder. And if someone has both, then they're suffering from bipolar disorder, which used to be called manic depression. Um, I'm actually not sure why the term was changed. I guess it made it more technical. But I actually thought that manic depression was a good description and the name itself sort of describes what that disorder is like. So a depressive disorder, right, and depression is just one of them, has to do with an intense and persistent uh, feeling of sadness. Right? And again, it's more than just your everyday blues. Okay, so we'll take a look at some of those symptoms a little bit later. Now, in the opposite direction, that's called mania, or someone having a manic episode. All right, A manic episode is someone who has a lot of energy, doesn't need sleep, right? feels 100% confident in everything they do, and they're blinded by that confidence. So oftentimes people who have a manic episode, and I work with one patient who is experiencing mania, back in the day and you know you're talking to someone who may be having a manic episode is when you cannot interrupt them during a conversation they speak so much and so fast and the ideas sort of fly in and out right and every idea is a good idea so someone experiencing a manic episode may lose most of their money because they have this euphoric confidence that everything's going to work and they may go out and buy like 200 sheep you know 
and they don't know what to do with it, but they had an idea at the time. So a person, when they come down from their manic episode, they oftentimes have this buyer's remorse, like, what the heck was I thinking? Why did I waste all my money on buying sheep? I don't know where that came from, by the way, but yeah, that that's what could happen. Okay. Now, if you have someone in the family who's buying a lot of sheep, I would be worried. But Let's talk about major depression. And just as a reminder, whether you're a student or not a student, and wherever you're listening to and watching this video, um, obviously, anytime we in, in the psychology department and the psychology professors teach this course and move on to the end of the course and we start talking about disorders, it tends to be a trigger for many students. So what happens is that many students may suffer from the psychology student syndrome, which I borrow from the medical student syndrome, which is you start reading about symptoms of a disorder and then you feel like you have it. And that is pretty common because everything we talk about here with all these psychological disorders, we all experience some degree of these things, right? We all experience some degree of anxiety. We all experience some degree of, of fear, some degree of sadness, some degree of excitement, right? So it's easy to say that, oh, I think my sister is totally bipolar, you know? And a lot of students have this sort of reaction. I know I did when I was studying psychopathology. You start going around with your little booklet diagnosing people around you. I don't do that. Okay, um, To create a diagnosis, you need to be a licensed professional. And by the way, when you see these experts on TV who are trying to diagnose a political figure, or or you, you have to be really cautious, right? The professional organizations have ethical boundaries and rules about forming an opinion about a public figure, right? Or labeling them with a diagnosis. You really cannot do that okay the very most that we can do is to take publicly available information and say that well you know that that is a sign of this but you you cannot definitively say that oh yeah this this senator here has definitely has a uh, schizophrenia this senator here has bipolar disorder you, you just cannot ethically do that as a professional okay um that's why even though I've been invited many years ago when I was a full-time college professor to uh, a local television station to talk about uh, trichotillomania, which is the hair-pulling disorder, right? Um, and they wanted to be on that, on that particular like local area, Houston local area talk show. I remember getting a phone call talking about that. And I told them, you know, I, I'm really not the best person. First of all, I'm not a practicing clinician who treats people I can sort of talk about it in a general way but I think it's best if you and I did a little online search and I said you may want to find these clinicians who actually specialize and work with patients in that area and that was the ethical professional thing to do even though I would have grasped at any opportunity to be on tv who wouldn't right it's kind of fun but I had to turn that down and now I'm a podcaster <laughs> Okay. All right. So with major depression, again, in the DSM, there's quite a few items here in terms of uh, the checklist. So a person, ha I believe that it's usually about nine items on the checklist, symptom checklist, and a person has to have five of these for at least a two-week period, right? 
And again, I don't want you to go out diagnosing people, but I think what's helpful about studying this at an intro to psych level is that maybe it does give you a few tools to look for warning flags in the people around you and even yourself. It's really difficult to diagnose oneself or to recognize when we are having a problem. But maybe for a family member, and again, it has to be a significant shift in what that person's normal was. Okay, Again, there's no simple way to diagnose someone with depression. And your job is not to diagnose, but just to look for warning flags and say, you know, can you step in and maybe intervene and and maybe get someone help. First of all, is someone having depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, right? Um, this is a warning sign. Whoa, it's a cat chasing a squirrel. Okay, so there's a loss of interest and pleasure in their usual activities, okay? So if your friend is usually outgoing and enjoys doing certain things and all of a sudden they say no a lot oh i just want to be home by myself you know that is one red flag okay loss of interest in their usual activities that brings them joy okay do they experience significant distress is their normal functioning impaired right like grades going down attendance in school going down right so a shift in their usual behavior. And there's a clause here that this these changes are not caused by substance or medical condition, right? So sometimes a medical side effect or having a disease of some kind or using substances can trigger these kinds of things as well. So this statement is basically for a clinician to say, let's rule that out first, right? So you can imagine that a very detailed interview over a couple of sessions is really needed as well as some testing to diagnose someone with major depression. All right. Um, so here are some examples of symptoms. Oh, change of weight, right? Weight loss or gain. And usually there's a percentage, and I don't know offhand what that percent. It might have been a 5 or 10% change in their weight over a certain period of time, like in a month's time or increased or decreased appetite. Again, that in itself doesn't mean anything, but collectively, these symptoms could be a sign of someone suffering from depression. Sleep disturbance, right? Sleeping too much, can't fall asleep. Psychomotor agitation or psychomotor retardation, right? Psychomotor just means their physical movements, right? Are they just more agitated and fidgety? Retardation in this sense means that are they moving kind of slowly and sluggish? Does it take a lot of effort just to get up, get out of bed, go walk to the restroom, to change one's clothing, right? That seems like it takes a lot of effort. A person may feel very tired all the time, loss of energy, fatigue, feeling worthlessness or guilt, right? And again, remember, we all feel and experience a lot of these things in small doses, right? But they don't affect us to the point of being disabled or being dysfunctional. See, college students have this a lot. Difficulty concentrating, difficulty making decisions, indecisiveness, right? And of course, suicidal thoughts, right? So as a clinician, if someone just refers to, and, th and it's very uncomfortable to ask, but it's something that you have, asked, have to ask. Now, 
it is more alarming if someone has created a very specific plan, right? It means that they've spent a lot more time thinking about suicide than someone who has fleeting thoughts of it. We all have occasional fleeting thoughts of death. Oh, what if I weren't around, right? Of course, having a suicide attempt is a big, huge right, um, warning sign. But that's called suicidal ideation. So it's a combination of five of these for a two-week period. Right? And again, hopefully you can use this information just to look for red flags. You're not out there diagnosing people. Okay. So it's fairly prevalent. Right? About 6 to 7% of the U.S. population is diagnosed or is affected by it every year. And lifetime prevalence is about 17% meaning in the chances of experiencing depression in one's lifetime. It is more commonly diagnosed in men, women than men. Again, we talked about some of the reasons earlier. Uh, and yes, there are comorbidity factors, other disorders like anxiety and substance abuse that are overlapping with depression. Risk factors, meaning factors that are associated with or could trigger depression being unemployed, right? Low income, living in an urban area, separated, divorced, or widowed. Okay? All of these are risk factors for depression. All right, talk about a couple of subtypes of depression you may have heard. You may have heard of seasonal depression, right? Um, so maybe someone feels depressed on a certain type of the year. Very common is uh, the winter season where the lack of exposure to sunlight um, is can be um, associated with this kind of seasonal depression. Um, there's postpartum depression that more people are recognizing now. And you see, that's the power of awareness and education, is that for the person who just gave birth, right, and feeling the blues and feeling suicidal they have to realize that oh i remember reading about this postpartum depression i wonder if i have it i need to get checked out right so this can happen during or after right? during the pregnancy or about a month following the birth of the child right so there's definitely something that family members and spouses need to keep aware of that you know watch for changes in one's mood for the mother that's involved right now, this one's pretty interesting. It's called dysthymia. Dysthymia is a persistent, low-level kind of depression where someone feels kind of down and sad most of the day, every day, but not for just two weeks, but for at least two years. Right? And someone who's suffering from dysthymia will not know that anything's wrong. They just feel like, oh, this is just me. Right? Um... So they may not meet the checklist for major depression, but they sort of just have sprinkles of it, right? And maybe a change of environment or a low dose of medication, antidepressant medication, is suddenly they're seeing the world very differently. The cloud is gone, right? That could be a sign that they have a biochemical, a biologically based type of depression, not so much based on a situation trigger. All right, another one that's fairly well-known for many people is called bipolar. Again, it used to be called manic depression, right? 
and they have to cycle. A person usually cycles between the ups and downs. And guess what? The challenge for being a clinician is that someone may come, come in and what if they only talk about or they're coming in during their depressive episode, right? So if a person does a very incomplete clinical interview, they may miss out on the fact that they also have manic episodes, right? Then you're going to have a misdiagnosis. They're going to be prescribed the wrong medication. They're going to be prescribed an antidepressant instead of a medication like lithium that takes care, that tries to modulate or reduce these ups and downs of emotions, right? To a point where it's more manageable. That's the highs and lows. So I talked about some of these earlier, about the symptoms of mania, right? Talking excessively, very irritable, flight of ideas, they talk very loud and switch from topic to topic very quickly. They're very distracted, right? Like seeing a cat, out, cat outside their window chasing a squirrel and they mention it, right? Um, grandiosity is interesting, right? They're, they're really full of themselves, right? In, in the sense of, oh, I'm extremely confident I can do no wrong. And that's where they get into financial problems. And oftentimes they may get into inappropriate sexual behaviors as well. I mean, they don't see the consequences of their actions. They don't see the need for sleep. They can go days without sleeping. Um, they can multitask, right? You might think, well, I need an injection of mania during finals week. But no, you don't really want this, okay? This is not good. Um, this can be very dangerous for someone who's experiencing mania, okay? And uh, for many disorders, actually, this, the prime onset, onset means when it usually appears, right? Uh, many disorders appear between the ages of 17 and 25. For So I think this kind of freaks out many college freshmen to read this. But when I was working with um, in the hospital with, and I'm, we're going to talk about schizophrenia momentarily, with, with patients with schizophrenia, almost all of them said that, oh, it happened really early on in my military duty, right? And think about people who joined the military, right? What age is that? Well, High school graduates, right? All right, so that's bipolar disorder. Um, let me move move forward a little bit. Yes, the bio, there's, there's a biological basis for mood disorders that we talked about in uh, previous chapters, okay? Uh, and also for mood disorders like major depression, yeah, if we think about that diathesis stress model, right? That yeah, there is a genetic component related to one's ability to regulate serotonin, if that's interfered with, right, then that person is born with a predisposition, diathesis, right? Add on stressful events, right? So if most people experience those stressful events, perhaps they can adapt to it easily compared to someone who has this genetic predisposition that maybe they're more likely to experience a depressive episode. So that's the gene-environment interaction that we talk a lot about in psychology. Okay? So again, remember, just because we inherit something and have a genetic predisposition, it is not a certain guarantee that someone will have that, right? Whether it's an Alzheimer's gene, cancer gene, right? Uh, there are many genetic tests these days for these conditions. A lot of it has to do with behaviors, our environment, these environmental triggers, and it just means that the odds are greater 
for you to become an addict for substances, for you to develop depression, for you to have anxiety, okay? It's not a, a death sentence. It's not fate, okay? All right. So another aspect of depression, if we look through the cognitive right, perspective, has to do with the way someone thinks. So a cognitive vulnerability here, and combine that with a stressful event, is not so much about genetics, right? That's the biological perspective. But if someone has the habit of being a negative thinker, right? Then you combine that tendency to think negatively and having some stressful life events, then that person is much more likely to develop depression. So this is a mental predisposition, not a genetic one, but a mental one. It has to do with this tendency to think in a different way, and that we can call that a depressive schema, right? Schema, a set of thought patterns, okay? And um, that's why cognitive therapies are very important, is to change one's set patterns of thinking. And again, these happen quite naturally and spontaneously for the person who has these depressive schemas. It's not a conscious strategy to think this way, to focus on the negative, to be extremely pessimistic, right? Oh, all politicians are just, they're, the government's out to get us, the politicians are out to screw us, you know, there's no point, there's no hope, right? Um society's going to collapse, right? Or there's nothing I can do to improve my grades. I'll never succeed. Right? Those are depressive schemas. All right. Another part of the cognitive perspective in terms of let's focus on the thinking aspect of depression is the negative thinking, right? Especially a sense of hopelessness. So rumination is a big part of depression ruminating just means having these repetitive thoughts right so these are things we can observe in others look for these patterns of thinking look for these patterns of the way people speak and the way they communicate their emotions right i'm going to talk very briefly about suicide here and i know that even talking about suicide can be a trigger so please Take, listen to this cautiously. Um, statistically speaking, women, females, tend to attempt suicide at much higher rates than men, than males. But it is the males right, that are sadly more successful at their suicide attempts and end up dying. So the death rates for men from suicide is four times higher than women but women have much higher rates of suicide attempts, and this has to do with the method, right? Men typically use firearms. Women typically use uh, medications to, in terms of overdosing on medications. Now, there are a wide variety of risk factors, and sadly, what happens in many families is that after a person in the family commits suicide, um, they start to think back on, well, did we miss anything? Did we miss? And they start to feel really guilty for seeing some signs but not acting on them, 
okay? And so there are multiple victims here and various levels of trauma and suffering when one person in the family commits suicide because then everyone else, friends and family around that person uh, will feel guilt for a long time that they should have done something about it, right? And so the risk factors here, substance abuse, previous suicide attempts, access to lethal means like firearms in the house, access to, to you know, firearms. Um, and there might be a triggering event, right? Maybe that person is withdrawing from society, from social relationships. Maybe they feel a sense of guilt and a burden. Uh, maybe they become more reckless and take more risks, right? Um, oftentimes people become suicidal because they feel trapped. Even emotionally, they feel like whatever's happening will never end. Um, so in therapy, when working with someone who's extremely depressed and suicidal, is to constantly drill in the fact that in terms of their cognitive strategy, is to focus on that whatever is happening is temporary. You know, we cannot say it's going to happen, last for a month or a week or a year, but a person usually has tunnel vision when they're experiencing depression and suicidal ideation. They, they feel like all the doors are closed to them. They're trapped, and there's no way to escape. So suicide is often seen as a method of escaping. Right? Cyberbullying, that's something that didn't occur um, in the previous versions of the DSM. We didn't, that didn't exist. Um, suicide of a family member or friend, right? Or it could be um, a serotonin dysfunction, right? Which leads to depression and suicidal thoughts. All right, so um, we're going to wrap up fairly soon, but before that, let's talk about a couple more. Let's talk about schizophrenia. And schizophrenia is its own category, in a sense. Um, one of the most misunderstood disorders, actually, schizophrenia. Um, and oftentimes, it's um, many people associate schizophrenia or mistaken for what's called multiple personality disorder, which goes by a different name. Now, dissociative identity disorder. Okay, uh, a lot of people use the term pejoratively, negatively, schizo, right? Uh, to call others. I hope we don't do that. Also, I want to talk to those who work in medical settings or want to work in a medical setting that the way we use our language is very important. I've been in a workplace where I hear people use terms like. In other words, labeling people as their diagnosis. It's like, oh, what's your day today like? Oh, you know, what's your schedule? I'm working with three uh, the schizophrenics and two bipolars, right? Well, that sounded bad, right? And there's a reason for that, okay? People, we have to see people as more than their disorders. So my preference, and I hope you pick this up, is to say that, if you're working in a hospital setting, oh, this afternoon I have a group therapy session with my patients with schizophrenia, right? Um, I have a patient with bipolar disorder that I'm working with at 3 o'clock, right? Don't label people as their disorder. Okay, oh, I got a depressive coming in, I got a schizophrenic, and I got two bipolars, and a phobia, and a PTSD guy, right? 
Um, that is extremely negative. It affects how we think about people. It just sounds bad if others who are not in the profession hear us talk. So in any case, let's talk about patients with and people who suffer from schizophrenia. Is that they're people first, right? That's why I prefer that phrase. All right. So perceptually, two of the main symptoms of schizophrenia, they're called hallucinations, and the other category is called delusions. A lot of people seem to mix those two together because they sound kind of like a hallucination is where your senses have broken down. You see, hear, feel things that don't exist. Okay, that's a hallucination. Hearing a voice, seeing something, seeing a person, seeing something crawling on a wall, right? Seeing the walls moving, you know, those are a change in our perceptual experience. That's a hallucination. A delusion is a an altered belief system. Right, So believing in things that are not real, someone is being delusional. Right? So try to separate those two. So someone hearing a voice is not delusional. They're having a hallucination. The delusions, some of the most popular ones, uh, common rather, paranoid delusions. Right, So paranoid schizophrenia is one of the more popular, why do I say the word popular? Prevalent disorders, right? And this is the belief that people are out to get them. Now, if you go back to see the older movie called A Beautiful Mind, uh, that film had a fairly good portrayal of someone suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. Grandiose delusions. I may have talked to you about in a previous podcast where I was a volunteer before um, I went to graduate school as a volunteer as an undergrad at a psychiatric hospital. And I remember sitting in a therapy group. So I'm not really supposed to say much in there just to keep people company. And I remember when patients were going around the room introducing themselves, there was a skinny white male with a really long beard. And he actually introduced himself as Jesus, as in the Jesus. Okay. And I was thinking, well, that's a textbook case of a grandiose delusion, right? thinking that they're someone who is unique, special, important, powerful, right? And so the Jesus Christ delusion, I thought it was just sort of a stereotype, but it happened to be true that day that I met Jesus in a therapy group. Um, now, you could go on and write a fictional story like, well, what if Jesus did come back and ended up in a psychiatric hospital, right? Uh, okay, so I, I won't go there. All right, um... And there are other kinds of delusions as well, okay? So somatic delusions, that has to do with um, the belief that something abnormal is happening to their body, okay? Um, so a delusion is, a, is really an altered belief system. Disorganized thinking, where they're having a hard time sort of following through on a consistent thought pattern and change topics sort of... Um, unexpectedly that's disorganized thinking and disorganized or abnormal motor behavior so when i worked in the va hospital i worked in the schizophrenia support groups therapy groups and many of them did move very slowly um, and a lot of that had to do with medications but it was also the disorder 
you'll see here that catatonic behaviors decrease reactivity to the environment. Some of some would have just repetitive hand gestures like twirling their hair with their finger, but just it would be constant. I remember one patient would do that on the top of their head. I have that very distinct uh, memory of that, seeing that. And so um, hallucinations, delusions, having disorganized thinking, having these sort of repetitive behaviors, unusual movements, maybe walk in a very different kind of posture. Um, and, and what's interesting is that the word schizophrenia sounds frightening, and people just assume that they're violent and dangerous, but that was the opposite of my experience in the hospital, was that, if anything, these were men, some were combat veterans, some were not. They're all about middle age in their 40s. Um, they had the onset of schizophrenia since they were probably 18 to 25, and they just could not function in normal society, right? They, they would just have to have help. Um, Sometimes they work, live in group homes that are supervised, so each so they they can do the tasks of daily living collectively, right? Um, I remember we went on group outings as a group from this outpatient clinic. Um, we took a van and we went out on a group outing. We went to Los Angeles uh, Stadium and saw a Dodger game. We got Dodger dogs, you know, and people around us have no clue that there were whole section was a group of uh, people with schizophrenia sitting next to them cheering on the home team all right um some people experience negative symptoms now obviously everything we talked about seems negative but negative here is is mathematical it means an absence or decrease in something whether it's an emotional expression motivation or certain behaviors a decrease of their normal activity so abolition is a decrease in motivation right Allergia, probably pronouncing that wrong, I don't remember how to pronounce that, is reduced speech, right? So oftentimes in group therapy, also because of medication, there really wasn't a lot of conversation. Um, people talk a lot less. Socially withdrawn, asociality. So all these start with the letter A, so it's a decrease of something, okay? Uh, the inability to experience pleasure is anhedonia. Um, all right, so you see schizophrenia has a wide variety of symptoms, okay? And schizophrenia is one that has a genetic component. There is a biological hypothesis explanation that's related to the neurotransmitter dopamine that a person who has schizophrenia symptoms may have an onset or overabundance of dopamine. So the drugs and medications they take are actually trying to uh, reduce dopamine. And if they take a street drug that, like cocaine that increases their dopamine levels, it can produce these psychotic symptoms. Right? So schizophrenia symptoms are often called psychotic symptoms okay? or psychosis. Okay? All right. And uh, let's move on here. All right, so earlier I mentioned that dissociative disorders are oftentimes confused with schizophrenia because a lot of people think schizophrenia means a split of the mind, but actually they were talking about dissociative disorders, okay? So dissociative identity disorder, the specific one, um, is one popular, well, popular in terms of well-known, DID, dissociative identity disorder, where someone has multiple identities, and it used to be called multiple personality. 
multiple personality doesn't really capture it. This is a person who has various identities in their mind. And when one identity takes charge, and the identities could be of various ages, different sexes, then they will, their main identity may have a memory gap of that. They may black out of that. Okay. Oftentimes it's correlated with childhood trauma where a coping mechanism kicks in of creating a different identity so that their real identity, um, so, so they escape from the trauma they're experiencing at the moment. Okay. So at the time as a child, switching into a different identity could be a coping me mechanism for the threat of a sense of threat and danger they were feeling at the time. Okay. Now there are other types of dissociative disorders and and just in general, dissociating means that their memory and their identity is disrupted. Okay. So there's a split in their core sense of who they are. So having a dissociative amnesia is one example. Okay. Dissociative fugue is someone who just forgets who they are and they wander away from home and adopt a new identity. Right? That's dissociative fugue. Um, so dissociative identity disorder, DID, right, obviously is where another identity can take over and then they lose memory of what that person did, right? All right, so personality disorder, I think this is the last one we'll talk about in this long lecture. And again, this is indexed, so hopefully this won't be as strenuous for you to go through all these different types and you can just skip around. So a personality disorder is really hard for students to understand because when you think about what a personality is, is how we think, feel, and behave, right? So how can that be a disorder? Isn't that just labeling someone who's unique and different from everyone else? So is this a case of where psychologists are just labeling abnormal people as being having a disorder? Or is it just part of being unique? Well, actually not, okay? Well, let's go back to the uh, living alone on a deserted island, right? So, yes, if someone who normally would be under the umbrella of any of these personality disorders lived alone and affects no one else, then, yeah, likely we would not need to have that label. All right. So if someone's personality style, they have elements of it that are very pervasive and inflexible, right, that violates the expectations of that person's culture, cultural norms, and causes distress or impairment, okay? So the onset is usually in early adulthood or adolescence, like many other disorders. Okay, so the way someone acts and behaves that violates the norms of that particular person's culture and causes a great deal of distress or impairment for themselves or others Oftentimes, a person with personality disorder does not really recognize that in themselves. Okay, And so let's look at a couple examples here. In any textbook that you look at or the DSM, you'll see that they're organized in different clusters. Okay, And let's talk about a couple of them uh, in more detail. So a borderline personality disorder has to do with someone who does not have the ability to form stable relationships with others, okay? They have a very unstable, unstable self-image. 
their mood shifts a lot and they can be very impulsive, right? So this is a person who does not want to be abandoned or separated from others. They cannot tolerate being by themselves. So it's a person who will engage in a relationship that's really bad for them, but is better than being alone, right? The relationships tend to be very intense and unstable, right? So when someone has a personality disorder, it's different from all the others because all the others, they had a sense of, a sense of stable normalness for them, right? In terms of being a part of society, being able to do things somewhat normally, like hold on a job and maintain friendships, and then they fall off, right? With depression or have anxiety symptoms or develop psychotic symptoms like hallucinations and delusions, right? All those other disorders have that sort of before and after pattern. But... Personality disorders tend to have this sense of that's just how the person is, right? Um, and they just have a hard time coping with the demands of society and interacting with other people. So borderline personality is a perfect example of that, where how this person interacts with others is the major theme, right? Now, a person can have borderline personality disorder in combination with anxiety, mood, and substance abuse disorders. Roughly 1% of the U.S. population may be affected by this type of personality disorder. Right? Um, there's a high degree of heritability, genetic, right? and it could be due to early childhood abuse. Right? But as an adult, there's a sense that this is how the person is, but the way the person is is not is causing a lot of dysfunction, right? So if that's how someone presents themselves, then you would lean toward a personality disorder type of diagnosis. Okay. All right, so let me um, talk a little bit about antisocial personality disorder. Antisocial, this word itself is often misunderstood, right? A lot of people use it casually, say, oh, I'm so antisocial, I'd rather be home by myself. Well, that's not the same thing, right? Antisocial literally means anti-society. It's someone who does things that violate society's rules. So the major characteristic is someone who feels that rules of society, laws, do not apply to them, right? The written or unwritten rules of society do not apply, do not apply to them. Um, in the book, there's a chart here that shows if there are certain things happening age 10, age 14, these are early predictors of predicting someone being uh, who may have antisocial personality. This is a very dangerous person, okay? Uh, it tends to happen more in men than women for some reason. And usually someone has to be at least 18 to be diagnosed with this. So if someone who's younger who's doing some of these things they would have a different diagnosis like conduct disorder, for example. Okay. All right, so an antisocial person, let me try to describe, give you a picture of this. Okay. First of all, they don't have remorse. They just don't feel compassion for others or their victims, right? They actually can be very charming, sometimes attractive, physically attractive. So psychopathic, sociopathic people are often... Um, synonymous with having antisocial personality disorders. 
They break rules, break laws. They lie without any conscience. They con other people without having conscience. They're very impulsive and reckless, so whatever their plans are, they may not be well thought out. They can be very aggressive and violent, right? They just, they're just not responsible for in any way, okay? They have a very overinflated sense of themselves, and part of the lack of remorse is the lack of ability to empathize, okay? And again, it's more common in men than women, so if you think about a, a serial killer, right, um... Serial abuser, right? a con artist who cheats the elderly, for example, of their life savings and don't feel any guilt, right? Uh, this, this is someone who could be categorized as antisocial. And a lot of risk factors here when someone's young, right? Um, being abused as a child, right? Think about physical abuse. You know, what does that teach someone, right? That when someone's dominant and abuse someone, that the abuser obviously doesn't care about the victim of the abuse. So that is part of the message that's being received when someone's being abused, right? Um, is that, well, that person deserves it and... Um, why feel compassionate for the victims, right? So there are aspects of genetic causes, right? Also, very unpleasant, adverse environmental circumstances. Okay? They have emotional deficits. So it's not so much that they don't feel empathy, but they also don't feel other types of emotions as well, okay? Um, the areas of the brain that are correlated with empathy and feeling concerned for others are less active in those brain regions, which makes sense. All right, that's a good place to stop. So we finished with personality disorders. We covered... Anxiety, mood disorders, schizophrenia, dissociative disorders, personality disorders, okay? And that's just scratching the surface, okay? Literally, you can spend a whole month just discussing different types of mood disorders and uh, different types of uh, cases, right? So if you're a graduate student studying to be a clinical psychologist or counseling psychologist, when you study psychopathology... Chances are you'll be given lots of real cases describing people with a variety of symptoms and then your job is to come up with a possible diagnosis. Again, a real diagnosis requires a lot of testing and interviewing, but as a student at that level, it's trying to narrow down what's the most likely diagnosis. Okay, um, And we do that a lot during our clinical training. Uh, for example, I will... If I work with a patient one-on-one, -on -one, we would tape record with a real tape recorder back then with um, the session. I would take the session, mark some highlights, play them in my supervision with the licensed psychologist who is supervising me and say, 
um, can we talk about this aspect of this patient? And then we try to come up with a diagnosis in a form of treatment, which will be covered in the next chapter. Okay, folks, I hope you found this useful. And again, for every college and university student, you have free therapy available on your campus. So I would take advantage of that, even if you're not distressed or feeling a sense of anxiety. It's great to just go in and talk to a therapist when things are going well. You will learn a lot about yourself. And there's a lot of room for growth, personal growth, because your mind is clear, not weighed down. You're not trying to climb out of something. You're actually seeing the world clearly, seeing yourself clearly. So I do highly encourage you to seek out therapy when you're going through college or university. Okay, you know how to contact me. Find me on Twitter. Find me on uh, uh, by email. Okay, all of that's in the description. I've also added, this is brand new, I've added... Um, a little how to support Dr. Chuang links, whether you want to do a recurring payment. Uh, okay, I'm not struggling for money, but I do want to support local area small businesses, especially coffee shops and roasters. So if you want to keep me caffeinated, you know that every dollar you give me will go directly to a local business. Um, and uh, especially during these tough times. Okay, folks, thank you very much.